Uh, good morning. My name is Ian Farmer. I'm the executive chair of South Hearts Potash, and uh, we have a suite of mineral rights in Thuringia in Germany. And on Monday of this week, we announced a scoping study on our first project, which um, displayed compelling economics uh, to build a one million ton per annum potash mine uh, in that region. Uh, Thuringia is an area that has an historical uh, track record of uh, mine production of potash over the last hundred years, and we're fairly excited about the prospects of uh, developing that project. Ian, uh, thanks for coming on the show. It's the first time we've met or spoken, um, so uh, I do appreciate that, uh, that you've, you've joined us. Um, potash, um, I think there are great, great hopes from the likes of people like BHP two years ago saying this, this is this is way forward. Um, the Market has also, I think, benefited from you know the Russia-Ukraine situation, Belarus situation. Have become big, big, big producers in the in the spaces uh, as far as we know. Um, are you just jumping on the bandwagon, taking advantage of that situation, um, or have, you know, have you been at this a while? I mean, when, when did this all kick off? Well, the original mineral rights that we own were acquired in 2017, so some five years or so back. We acquired the mineral rights uh, from the German state uh, and um, through a tender process, they came with the results of some 300 boreholes. So we knew more or less what was under the ground when we acquired the rights. And we spent the last couple of years putting together um, uh, an inferred resource on, on that uh, geographical area. And part of that's now been upgraded to indicated uh, on which the scoping study has been based. Uh, the market itself ha has, has changed dramatically in the last 18 months in particular. And indeed, the potash price has trebled probably over that time frame. I think the first spurt of energy came from the uh, emergence of the world from the COVID period and, and food security coming on the radar screen for the first time. And the demand for fertilizer pushing the price up from $300 to $590 being the contracted price in February of this year. Then, of course, you had the Ukrainian and the Russian uh, conflict, which has propelled it to, to new heights. So we're currently seeing spot prices of between $900 and $1,000. And the big question for us, of course, is where will the price settle in five years' time when we're a producing mine? You know, the long-term price from here will probably settle somewhat lower than $1,000, uh, but will it ever go back to the kind of $300 mark that we've seen historically? Our view is not. Our view is that there has been a sort of fundamental shift in pricing and that you should see prices, long-term prices, that is settling some 10 to 15% ahead of where they were. Right. So you reference um, the, the BHP Janssen project in your presentation. Um, it's of a certain scale. Uh, it's going to require a lot of uh, capex. But you, you, through your scoping study, know what, what about your site? What are, the, what are the data that we should be looking at? Because you're indicating it could be quite significant. I think an important factor with potash is location. And this is a bulk commodity, it's expensive to transport, and there's lots of CO2 associated with that transport. Uh, we'll be producing in Central Europe, uh, and Europe is a net importer of potash. So we'll be supplying into a market that is in deficit. Uh, to, to fill that deficit from Canada is expensive in terms of transport and CO2. So we're ideally placed to pick up some of that uh, market deficit, and um, um, uh, that's where we'll be supplying into. And... Um, uh, the last factor, of course, is that um, uh, countries these days are looking to be self-sufficient in terms of uh, strategic supply of raw materials, like, for example, the ingredients in fertilizer. So I think that you know you can expect Europe to, to want to be 
um, a lot more supportive than perhaps historically has been the case, as the globalization of the past starts to be re-examined in a strategic context, I think local supply will become something that is encouraged and indeed supported. Okay, and um, so right, that's, that's a nice sort of overview of, of, of the story. Um, can I sort of bring it back a little bit? Because I'd say, first time I've, I've met or spoken to you, can you give me a little bit of background on yourself and then perhaps some of the active member of, of the team? Yeah, I'm currently uh, acting chair. Um, we are searching for a new chief executive as we speak. Uh, my background is um, I was chief executive of Lomman, the platinum mining company, for a number of years. Uh, I now do non-exec work generally. Uh, so uh, we are looking for a new chief executive. We have within our team Polish expertise. A chief operating officer has uh, tried and tested and steeped in, in the industry. And he's obviously been the mainstay of producing the scoping study we've produced. But we are a fairly small team. Uh, up until recently, we were largely a virtual company. Uh, staff living in different places and, and keeping the overheads as low as possible. But we have recently opened a regional office in Erfurt, which is uh, the town in Germany uh, closest to our, where our operations will be. And we've employed a regional director to run that office. Our regional director is an ex-politician um, with an environmental background, a lady called Dr. Babette Winter. And she's taken over uh, the running of the day-to-day -day operations in the region and will lead permitting and, and environmental issues and social issues for the company. Right. So, so what happened to the uh, previous person? Why are you looking for someone new? Yeah, the, the previous uh, chief executive uh, party company with us back in May of this year. Right. Okay. Um, because that worked, they, they got a, another position that they wanted or, or was it a case of change of strategy? It was a decision the company took to move on to, to find somebody better placed to take the company forward. Uh, he didn't have the right attributes, we felt, at that time to, to take us through the next phase of our strategy. And indeed, we wanted somebody prepared to spend the lion's share of their time in Germany, which he was not. So uh, that was the driving force. Okay, okay, fair enough. Um, right, so the, you kind of laid out the team and, and, and um, you know, you're, you're kind of upgrading the team, as it were, getting people in country. Good, all good news. Um, can you just talk to me about what the plan? We've talked about the market more, more, more broadly, but you know, producing in Germany into um, you know Euro European ecosystem, which is a net importer. How do you, how do you go about that? Because you, you know, from where you are today to you know getting into production, there's obviously lots of hurdles um, that you've got to get over. But once you've once you once you've done that, um, how do you sell directly into the market, you know, and whatever the price is, do you sell directly or do you need to go through a third party? Is it wholesale? How does it work? Well, I think, first of all, just to put some timeframes around your question, uh, to complete the study that we have to do and to complete the permitting work is going to take two and a half to three years to do. And then, of course, you've got a build phase where you've got to sink a shaft and, and, and uh, build new plants. That takes another couple of years to complete. So, being able to um, market our product and, and, and um, design a, a marketing program, if you like, is some five years away. So we have plenty of time to examine the options around, around how that works. Uh, and uh, at this stage, we are completely uncommitted. We have no off-take arrangements. We have no um, financial commitments to anybody. We've deliberately left things as open as possible because those are very valuable um, attributes, if you like, of potential financing structures. Uh, so we've got plenty of time to explore all those options as we as we move forward. But do you need do you need again? I don't. I, so I think it's um, 
you know, if, if we're talking like pre- precious metals or y- uranium or battery metals, you so we can sort of understand. I think most people they're, they're bigger markets, so people understand how they work a bit. So for some for something like this, how do you get your financing in place if you don't have um, contracts uh, or agreements in place or over what the financing could be? I mean, how, do, how does that work? Well, first of all, in, in terms of the customer base, all, all the options around direct selling to um, consumers of, of potash or to traders, uh, all, all those options are open to us. Um, and we can explore those, as I said earlier. In terms of financing, yes, you're right. I mean, when, when you produce your bankable technical study uh, and you try and raise finance, uh, financiers who want to see that there is a ready market for the product, the product we're actually making is a bog-standard MOP product. It's, it's, it's not a complicated or technical thing. It's, it's it's a sort of a uh, it's 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 not a, an exotic in any way whatsoever. So being able to sort of understand that there are there is a market for it, I think, is is, is fairly easy. Uh, the extent to which we have to contract, if you like, or to have a uh, an offtake arrangement, or indeed a marketing arrangement with a counterparty, is something we haven't yet explored. If we need to do that to get the financing over the line, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Right. Okay. Okay. And in terms of the the size, the because again, when we started looking at um, this sector, you know, three three four years ago, it seemed it seemed like quite a kind of closed uh, cabal like um, environment where there were some big big players, obviously Russians, um, and Belarusians um, as well, and as well as some others. You kind of control the. The, the the pricing to a degree, but also um, the kind of dis- distribution. So again, has has that environment changed um, somewhat? And you know, how how do you manage? Fact, and I know it's early days in, in the scoping, but manufacturers like being un- undercut, or um, you know, distributors preferring to distribute other people's um, material. As you say, this is an industry where some thirty percent of material comes from Belarus and Russia, and another thirty percent comes. Out so those those two big blocks are, are very influential in terms of global pricing. Um, I think that uh, Russia and Belarus have become um, tainted or persona non grata to many European suppliers, particularly referring back to the comment I made earlier about wanting strategic secure sources of supply uh, from friendly nations. Uh, so I think that gives us a, a marketing uh, advantage within our domestic market that uh, the Russians and Belarusians will never be able to compete with. Going, going that way. And I think uh, on the Canadian side, yes, there is surplus capacity in Canada. In Canada, And of course, with Janssen coming on stream, that's going to exacerbate that, that overcapacity issue. Uh, but to get potash all the way from Saskatchewan to the port in, 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 um, uh, on, on the western coast of, of the Americas and then transport it all the way through Panama, all the way to Europe, is a very expensive process and very expensive in terms of CO2. So I think that as a preferential supplier, uh, we will definitely um, have the have the march on on our, on our competition in Europe itself, and um, and the second point obviously is one needs to be a low cost producer when you're selling into a, a, a competitive uh, environment where where there are oligopolistic characteristics. You need to be near the bottom of the cost curve, and, and the scoping study shows that our, our um, cost of production at a byproduct credits is a, at the fairly low end of the of the cost curve. So that gives us some protection. Um, uh, against uh, you know somebody squeezing the price deliberately to make uh, new entrants suffer. 
Is that is that the USP for you in terms of being a lowest quartile cost producer? Because we, we've seen we've seen Russia weaponize gas and oil, and it's been talked about for years. But you know, Europe's steadily ignored that. It's now in a position where it actually has to start thinking for itself, producing for itself, and coming up with solutions. Um, is are you, I guess you're saying you're in this is a similar position to take advantage of the fact that Europeans are saying, well, we need to be more self self sufficient and self dependent on. And then in this case, potash. Um, but price has a funny, funny, you know, price has a funny way of affecting the way that you know materials flow, um, you know, globally, and you know, it become you know, price is really, really important in in that. So you think because of the what you hope your cost will be and your margins will be, you are defensible in in that sense. Yeah, I mean. The, the- I guess what you're saying is that um, uh, market prices in, in different geographies do differ slightly, but the overall global supply-demand balance is, is, is a factor one can't ignore. Um, so what I'm saying is in extremis, should, should the oligopoly try to squeeze out the smaller players uh, and, and push the price down to $250 where it was a couple of years ago, we would still be profitable at those levels. Our unit cost of production on our, on our scoping study numbers is $93 a tonne, which is well below um, where the Canadians, or the average Canadian position is and where the average Russian Belarusian position is. So I think that you know, it would be very painful for them to squeeze things down to that level themselves and, and therefore um, unlikely that they would go to that extreme. You know, and particularly, you know, a one million tonne producer in, in Europe who, who's selling domestically, I don't think is a huge threat to them. Right. Okay. Okay. And, and let's, let's talk about the, so I just want to continue with the market stuff because it's like for most people looking in, it's polish is not something that, that perhaps they've considered or understand enough to get involved. You're, you're like 45, 50 million Aussie, um, company, um, with, you know, an asset in Europe. You're well followed in, in, in that sense in, in Australia. Um, do you think that, you need another listing because you're, you're kind of the European folk. We've seen a few Aussie companies come and list in the UK just on, on AIM or even Frankfurt just to kind of, um, catch the, catch the eye, catch the attention of funders over here and investors over here. I think the positioning of the company where it's, where it's, uh, where it's able to raise the funds to build the mine it is going to be a two or three year journey that we're embarking upon, uh, to build the market cap of the company gradually over time. Uh, and to widen the uh, shareholder register, perhaps bring in uh, strategic partners uh, along the journey. I think that um, listing the company in London is, is part of that process. Um, we are a European asset. There's no doubt that a large chunk of the funds to build a new, new mine would come from European sources, maybe even development finance uh, and out of Europe, who knows. And having a listing in London will be clearly beneficial. Uh, London tends to be a market that doesn't follow pure exploration particularly closely, but it is very good for raising finance for, for development. So I think as we get closer to development uh, timeframe, uh, it'll become more and more relevant that we have a, a UK following or a European following and a, a listing most likely on AIM. So over the next two and a half years or so, you should expect to see us go down that path. Timing, however, is obviously important. Uh, and it's expensive for, for a, an Australian junior to list here. So the, the cost benefit uh, threshold has to be crossed before we, we'll put it on the radar screen. But I think it's something that is sensible for us to do at the right time, yes. Right, okay. And the other thing that Australian companies tend to do when they, when they um, have a European asset is they start exploring the various funds, tax incentives, 
um, as well provided by you know the relevant government, whether it be federal or more local. You mentioned you've got a, a, a lady who's joined you, ex-politician. Is, is that part of her remit, trying to understand what funds may be available to you? And together with the chief financial officer, yes, the, the two of them need to explore what, what avenues of funding might be available out of the European system as a whole. Um, and that's something we'll look at in the fullness of time, yes. Right. And um, how is Germany with regards to, I know you've talked about 100, 100 years worth of mining in Germany, but you know, not a whole bunch of new stuff coming on tap. Um, I, I guess given the nature of it, it's a slightly more green credentials. Um, so are they enthusiastic? Are they welcoming? Are they helping you in any, any way? That's very interesting. Uh, Thuringia is, is a, a state which has a mining history. Um, the old GDR was one of the world's biggest producers of potash up until unification. Uh, on unification, those mines were, were deemed to be overmanned, undercapitalized, and, and not commercially viable at the time. And the number of them were closed uh, with quite some significant social consequences at the time. So there is still a legacy uh, in the uh, in the community and in, in, in the fabric of, of, of that area, where mining is very much an accepted um, industry. Uh, and uh, all the conversations we've had with local politicians and with um, local counterparties you know, in, in the social context have all been extremely supportive, actually. Uh, and it's been been very welcoming. So there's no doubt that uh, permitting is going to be extremely diligently um, uh, adjudicated by the German authorities. It's the Turingian state that has to provide the license, not not the federal state. And um, uh, I, I I believe the political background, if you like, to mining and the, and the and the need for self-sufficiency and certain critical resources will provide the right political climate, if you like, for a, for a positive approval, um, because we have local support and hopefully we have national support from a strategic perspective as well. We've had no pushback, no complications, but the environmental issues in particular will, will be centre stage. And we have said publicly that we will build a mine which puts all uh, the backfill back underground. There's no permanent stockpiles on surface. And we have said publicly that we will not discharge any any water into the water system. Uh, and historically, those are the two social uh, complaints about mining were, were the mine dumps that were left over after mines were finished and, and water discharges that polluted the local water table. So those two assurances we will have to give, yes. Okay, so do you think you're kind of getting a free pass because of the nature of what you're, what you're mining? It's the word mining that I think is the most uh, uh, evocative. Um, you know, and, and the Germany has got a lot of NGOs financing a lot of anti-mining uh, uh, activities elsewhere in the world. So it's, I guess it's a path you've got to, you've got to steer and navigate quite, quite carefully, but that, because of the nature of what, what it is that you're doing and you're talking about rehabilitation and obviously mindful of the, the, the water situation, yeah. you, you feel that you, this is an environment which you're welcome, for sure. That, the messaging we're getting so far is, is encouraging. And uh, we are also, uh, just to explain, we are sinking a vertical shaft here, which has a very small footprint on surface, building a plant which is like a small factory. So uh, there are a number of shafts already in the area, which were there from the previous um, previous times, some of which are still operational and working in, in, in a small way. So the, the, the sort of the site of headgear around the, uh, around the vicinity is not an unusual site. Um, and um, we're not doing anything that's sort of 
that would be out of context with, with the area we're, we're, we're working in. Indeed, there is also area around the Ongeberger site that have already got industrial uh, classification from a land use point of view. So using land that's already classified as industrial or, or indeed has a history of mining in itself uh, should help with the permitting process. It doesn't obviously give you a green tick in the box straight away, but it's a lot easier to explain you know, why you want to do something if the, uh, uh, the zoning is already conducive to, to that kind of activity. Right. Okay. So we, we've kind of dealt with, I need to see to buy into the thesis for us. So you, you, you've, you've answered quite a few questions um, for us today on that one. So you, you've, obviously we talked about the scoping study where you are today. There's, there's a kind of, there's a runway through to production. So what are the, what are the kind of um, hurdles as it were, or, or the kind of, I guess, catalyst as a word people like to use between now and getting into production, which you're, you're mindful of uh, addressing? Yeah, the, what we've done is we've looked in some detail at the permitting process in Germany, how it works, uh, that there are two key steps. The first one being um, the site location and do the authorities agree that you should build your operations on that site and what are the consequences for the social community and the environment of that site decision? That's the first hurdle we have to cross. So choosing the site and going through that uh, approval process for site location is going to take between 12 and 18 months to complete. Uh, the next step beyond that is to put forward what they call a general operating plan, which is basically a full mining plan explaining what you're building, what it entails, how it works, and what the volumes are and how the waste is treated, etc. That also requires a full environmental impact study. So the environmental impact study needs to be kicked off because gathering the data that supports that application needs a full 12-month cycle as you, as you monitor through the seasons the various uh, fauna and flora that need to be you know, uh, looked at to make sure you don't have an impact on them. So there's probably 18 months worth of fairly detailed work in terms of site location approval, completing our PFS and putting in our general operating plan. Those are the immediate hurdles we have to, have to, to navigate. And what we've done is designed our, our own internal work uh, to make sure it dovetails the permitting process to try and optimise the outcome of, and speed of permitting um, approval. Okay, so, so yeah, as far as you're concerned, that, that's the big hurdle for you, not the potential size of the capex required, given the scale of the opportunity in front of you, right? And as a, you know, let's go $45, $50 million company today, you're going to need to show that growth profile, that growth potential for people to believe that this thing can get funded without, you know, significantly diluting your, your shareholders, right? So what, what, are, what are the things that you need to do to, deliver to that side of the equation to give people the sense that this thing is entirely possible by a company of your size? As you would expect, all these things have to happen in parallel. Um, you know, you've got to have a project that's on, on the right pathway to getting permits to, to, to proceed. At the same time, you have to work on the, uh, the financing thereof. And, and as you said earlier, you're not going to get financing until you've got a bankable study with a with, uh, home for your products and, and all those good things that, that financiers will look to. So all that work has to happen in parallel and it will we will do so. Uh, I use the word, that's a journey that we need to progress down. Uh, there are a number of alternatives we need to explore. Uh, the use of offtake contracts, the use of royalty financing, bringing in strategic partners, uh, listing in London. You know, all, all those options have to be evaluated and, and looked at. Uh, and, and as you said earlier in, in your introductory question, you know, which one of those gives the best value outcome for, for shareholders doesn't end up in material dilution. So we're on that journey at the moment. I haven't got an answer for which of those 
which which formula out of those options is going to provide the best solution. But for me, the numbers in the study speak for themselves. If you know if you've got a if you've got an asset which has a net present value of well over a billion dollars with an IRR of 26%, those numbers are based on pretty conservative underlying assumptions. This is a project that's going to get built. It, you know, finding out which is the right magic formula to, to finance it is something that we need to apply our minds to over the next two years as we go down that journey. Right. And so, so I'm going to, I'm going to hone in one particular aspect of what you just said, which, which is strategic partner, because strategic partners means different things to different people. And I guess yeah. you'll tell me you're on a journey. There are lots of options available yeah. to you, but uh, in a closed market like this, in a small market like this, there's only a few players who perhaps have got the balance sheet to um, get involved. Um, and they, May have you know other 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 things on the plate, which kind of makes the university. Some of them may have other other things on their plate, which makes the university even smaller. So, um, what what are the questions that you think you need to answer for yourself to try and understand the potential for bringing in a, a strategic partner, and and in, and in what sense would you like them to come on board? Because obviously, coming in at Pubco might be actually dilutive. So, you know, how, how do you how do you approach the asset or funding the asset? Via strategic yeah. partner, my view is that um, uh, what we would call a strategic investor or, or a cornerstone investor would be ideal. Uh, somebody who comes in at, at top level and prepared to, you know, invest a reasonable amount of the money uh, up front, but is also um, uh, buys into the medium-term plan of the company uh, to take us through to that uh, build decision ultimately. Be that a private equity fund, be that a um, corporate of some sort that has some vested interest in the space. Uh, there are parties like that out there and, and we need to you know, go and have the right conversations and see if we can interest them. Now we have a scoping study that is possible. It wasn't possible when you had no numbers to put on the table. So a strategic investor of that sort would be ideal. Personally, I'm not in favor of bringing in partners at project level because we have several projects. Uh, the Ongerberger project in, in, the, in the north of our uh, four properties is, is actually the smallest. And what I wouldn't want to do is to um, uh, bring in a, a partner at project level and that might deter people from coming in uh, on the other projects because they sort of see us as a tied house. So I think at, at, at Topco, um, and a company which has more of a financial interest than an industrial interest would be ideal. Okay, okay. And so how, and how, do you, how does one sort of get that competitive tension going when there's any... Because you, you kind of got, and pardon, pardon my words, not yours, there's the kind of dumb money which people are saying, well, you know what you're doing technically, but we can bring the money to the table. Um, and then there's, I guess, sector specific funds, which may, may be interested. And then there's going to be industry players, um, whether that be uh, traders or, or, you know, actual producers who put sell into the market. So there's a, there's a kind of suite of, types of cash available um, to you um, in, in that sense. So again, have you any preference what, what, what's going to be best for your business um, in that sense? I think at this point, we need to be open-minded, quite frankly. Uh, we, we don't want to you know, pigeonhole ourselves into one of those categories. I think it's a matter of you know, looking what, what, what options are out there and, and not only price-wise, but conditionality around investment it's pretty important in these situations. I mean, having mindful of the fact that, um, you know, we need to look after value for all shareholders, not just one or two of them. So, you know, you've got to get the package right and uh, it's difficult to answer. Your, your question is valid, but there isn't a, a clear, you know, a clear black or white answer at this point. 
we need to be minded and evaluate them. Okay, and then in terms of the the, the total universe, in terms of peers, there are a few. We, we've had a few on on the show in different parts of the world um, who took took a, took a great game was, was as it's their job and their want. Um, but what's what what do you feel that your USP is? Is it the fact that you're in Europe? In a environment which is a net importer, and that people, and the fact that your co- your costs and therefore your hopefully margins are uh, significant, is that what people will buy into? Um, do you are you concerned at all about oversupply in in the market? You know, Janssen obviously is a massive project, but for the reasons you said, it probably has some kind of restrictions there. So, w- where's all this product flowing from and to? I, I guess, and you know, are, do you just stick on Europe and and, and the job done? I think that the there's two things you missed out. Uh, first of all, being based in Central Europe, uh, in Germany, one of the richest countries in the world, means that you have infrastructure on your doorstep. Uh, you know, you, we have an autobahn literally a few kilometres from 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 the Ongerberger project. We ha- we have a rail siding not very far from the Ongerberger project. We have power and water in the area, so those are major hurdles for, for, for potash miners normally because potash is normally a long way from anywhere. So they they mean that our, our capital profile, six hundred million dollars, is not a, not a small amount of money, but by potash standards, it's a small amount of money. So I think the the advantages of being in a, in a country with developed infrastructure are, are significant, first and foremost. Uh, we're also in an area highly industrialized within sort of a two hundred kilometer reach. Uh, we have plenty of customers and and plenty of. Uh, um, uh, industry to, to consume our product. So that, again, that is a fairly novel position to be in. We're also only 280 kilometers from Hamburg, uh, which is our nearest port. And during the off season, for example, it means you can still continue to export to somewhere like Brazil uh, if you want to during the off season period and, and, and keep your cash flow consistent through the year rather than being seasonal. So we are very well placed geographically to, to exploit all these advantages. So, so are you saying in that sense you don't actually feel you've got a competitor? Is that what you're trying to say? I think in, in, in Northern Europe, I think at the moment, the competitor would naturally would have been Belarus. Uh, and, and of course, they've become a little bit uh, tainted with recent events. So I think that we're in a very strong position in Northern Europe uh, to sell into that area of the marketplace. We have Highfield in the south, which will perhaps sell into Spain and to France. Uh, but Northern Europe being um, Northern France, Holland, Germany, Norway... Uh, all, all that sort of area is, is, is prime territory for us to, to market into. Right. And, and, and sorry, I've got my, my banker's hat on here, it, it, which is um, that's all well and good now, but, you know, the sins of the child eventually kind of get forgiven and Belarus comes back into the market. Or would you be seen as a competitor for them? Would they be trying to undercut you or would it be a case of there's room for all of the above? I think that the deficit uh, of demand versus supply in Europe is increasing um, because the KNS mines, which are in the south in Germany, are old and they're gradually shrinking and closing over the next sort of five to 10 years time frame. So the, the supply demand uh, movement is in our favour. Uh, and uh, yes, I think if, if, if there was a magic wand and Belarus were to start selling back into, into Europe, um, they would be a competitor to us. But, you know, I think they're tainted for some time to come, quite frankly. Uh, and I think that the attitude of Europeans to wanting to be self-sufficient in these raw materials will mean that, you know, we've, we, we, we continue to be the supplier of choice if that is necessary. 
Right. Okay. You've got um, you've got about ten million um, bucks uh, cash available to you now. Um, is that pretty much all allocated? And if so, what to? And you know, when do you need to go back into the market for capital? Yeah. The the cash position is reasonable at the moment. Uh, our burn rate of cash has gone down considerably because the the, the high burn rate was the drilling we were doing in the first uh, part of this calendar year. So that's behind us. Our overall overheads are around at about three hundred thousand Australian dollars a month. So there's no immediate sort of need to rush out and raise cash. Uh, but at the end of the day, we are an exploration company. Our only source of money is the marketplace. So there will be a fundraise at some point. Uh, but we've not indicated uh, when that is, and it's not going to be in the next few months. Sorry, and did I get that number right? I may have pulled ten million from somewhere else. Is it around? How much? No, it's, it's a round number, and the six point seven million was our cash position at the end of June. Right. And we have. We have options that will exercise before the end of the calendar year about 4.5. So, got it. Around that, okay, right. okay, okay, okay. So, that burn rate is actually reasonable, quite reasonable at the moment. Um, so, where are we? So, that may or may not be the side of Christmas, depending on market conditions. Correct. Okay. Um, Ian, great introduction, good story. I'm intrigued by the European angle. Um, so, I appreciate you making time to come on the show and tell us about it. Um, And uh, we'll stay in touch. Okay. Thank you very much.